Jonathan Hill from the United States Army, retired first sergeant, here to talk to me today about an event in our recent history that you know very well because you were there, and that would be the Battle of Cop Keating, which was a couple years ago uh, made into a movie. And that movie was called The Outpost. So, Jonathan Hill, thank you very much for joining me on Lessons from the Front. Thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege. I'm a I, 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 uh, big fan of uh, you know, your organization, Carry the Load, and everything it's all about. So, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I, I want to you know, kind of jump right in. For people who haven't seen this movie, the research that I did, and I watched the movie again, um, as I told you, you know, my daughter's a big fan of the movie. She's 17 years old, but um, somehow she, she, she gets the magnitude of the situation. Um, and so when I went back and watched it this, uh, this second time, and I kind of took some notes this second time, did some research on the production of it. From what I understand, it was an extremely accurate portrayal. There were a few things that, that, that were very much uh, done in Hollywood fashion, but for the most part, the story and the depiction of the story were very accurate. Is that? Would you say that that's the case? I would, yes, and that's 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 a good that's an accurate statement. There's the only things that are really uh, not accurate from someone who was there and from all the others that had been there as well is the fact that they try to cram like ten years into this movie of that place being there. So a lot of things that had happened during that movie actually happened with units prior to us getting there, but they needed that to be in the movie to sort of build up what, what was going to happen at the end. Uh, and there was some other things that were just small details. Like uh, there was some, there was some things that happened that someone else was assigned to in the movie that they didn't do during the, the, the battle because they didn't want to participate in the movie. So uh, they give the credit or they had someone else do that same action, but they wanted that action in the movie because it was very important for that to be there. So at the end of the day, I think it was, it was a well done movie. And I, I think it was, uh, everybody was well represented. Well, what I found was that, that was what I found that was very interesting to me is that you had several uh, people who were, who were in the actual battle on October the 3rd, uh, 2000, uh, 2009. And, they were actually either in the movie or directly on set uh, mm -hmm. as an advisor to the movie. That's correct. Um, and I think, I think Gonzalez was one of them who was actually, he said, man, it was surreal that I actually played myself in the movie. Um, there were only 53 <laughs> or 54 of you there. So you have to know these guys pretty well, I would assume. Yeah. And it was, it was a lot more than that, too. Uh, the, the director um, did a phenomenal job. The director's a, a veteran himself. West Point graduate, artillery, all the, all the things. So he's seasoned. So he 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 had the cultural competence that they needed for that movie. They also brought in a lot of other uh, consultants that were actually former Rangers and things like that, and infantry and stuff to kind of help the actors to understand the lingo, the lang you know, the the body language, the things that we do when we're deployed or not deployed. So it really it really helped give a better aspect and a perspective as as what we who were actually there kind of, so they could portray it better. And so was it kind of, I mean, let, you know, let's just get this right out of the way. Was it weird watching somebody portray you 
uh, up on up on the stage? Well, it, it was weird because the guy was, was uh, uh, Jonathan Younger, who uh, who played my role. Um, he's a definitely a much better looking guy and much smarter guy, and uh, <laughs> just a just a real good dude. Uh, it, it was a little awkward, but I think that he he really put uh, his his uh, effort, heart, and soul into that um, that role, just like the rest of them had uh, did. So it, it was done well. So I, I want to jump right into um, the relationships that were portrayed in the movie. Um, it, it really kind of highlighted a tension between uh, Clint Romache um, and, um, uh, gosh, Carter. I'm sorry. All of a sudden, his name slipped my mind. Um, and obviously, these two went on to you know, receive the Medal of Honor for their actions. Was that tension accurate? Was it real? Was it a flash in the pan? Um, well, the, the, the tension was there. It was real. Um, two different personalities, uh, two different, you know, a lot of these guys dealt with different styles of leadership from different platoons and things like that. Um, so, yeah, there was some tension there. And there was a rivalry between platoons and things like that, which is natural when you come into a, a, a unit size like that. Um, but Okay, okay. so real, real quick, you, you were the platoon sergeant mm -hmm. for one of the platoons. Was Clint Romache the other platoon sergeant? He was on the day of the battle. Uh, his platoon sergeant was actually out of, out of theater at the time. So he was a, I believe he was the senior scout who would naturally take over as the platoon sergeant during his absence, which he did a great job. There's no doubt about it. He stepped up and he, and he, and he did a great job as a leader. And then Carter, was he your platoon or was he in uh, uh, Romache's platoon also? No, he was in my, Carter was in my platoon. <clears throat> so, you know, there was the, there was the rivalry and, the, and again, the, the difference in leadership styles and stuff like that kind of added to, uh, just the, the tension. It, it wasn't just between them. It was, you know, there was others too. Well, that's, but that's, that's not completely unnatural. I mean, when you've got uh, units take on the personality of their leaders yeah. and sometimes that, that kind of healthy competition can get a little too competitive. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, that's really the way it was portrayed to me in the film mm -hmm. is that it was, it was a, uh, it was healthy, but it was bordering on, I mean, because at the end of the day, obviously everybody was there to support one another. Sure. But it was, it was just tense enough to keep everybody uh, on edge and everybody on, on point all the time. So what was Carter like as an individual? <laughs> well, you know, he was, a, <clears throat> he was a Marine beforehand, so there, there's that. Uh, love Marines. <laughs> I, I hope none of the Marines get me, get me twisted on that one, but uh, – so he, he, he was a, you know, very, very robotic. Um, I always called him the guy with the horse blinders on. He never looked to his left and right. Whatever was in front of him was his focus at all times. He, um, <clears throat> he, he wasn't, he has a, he had a very awkward personality. However, he was like Radar O'Reilly from MASH. He had something done before I even asked for it to be done. And he, sometimes he did it 
too much or too good or, or it was just weird. Um, good. St- I mean, he was a good soldier, but he just had this, he had a personality no one could really click with. Um, and that's not good or bad for me to say. Oh, it just it's is. Just, that's just the way it was. So in the movie, the, uh, the role that, that he played, mm-hmm. and really the role that your platoon played, mm-hmm. was, was one, I don't want to say subservient, but it was supportive. Um, you know, he was the one carrying the ammo to the front. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of your team was, uh, you know, was back in, in you know, I don't know if those are the barracks or the CP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by CP, you know, I mean command yeah. post. Mm-hmm. But y'all weren't always out there where his platoon was. Can you describe the the uh, the missions within the mission on that day? So that, that's a great point, and and that's accurate too. Because the thing is, is when that happened, uh, Romache or Red Platoon was actually on perimeter guard when this happened. So they were already out in in the the battle zone, uh, if you will. And so when it happened, the what the other platoon and supporting platoons would do is is go to certain positions, resupply with ammo, help however they can. And so that's why the movie played out. And that's exactly what happened. Um, we had a little bit of a struggle. Well, we had a lot of a bit of a struggle trying to get to many of these positions because of the amount of firepower that was coming in. I mean, we lost one that, uh, you know, Scusa, who as soon as he ran out the door, he was shot and killed. Uh, so every time we were trying to push people out of the, out to get those resupplies out, it just became more difficult. And then, um, you know, you throw a fire on top of all the buildings and an ammo cache that's going off at the same time. And, you know, just the, the, the chaos that was happening was just, you know, <clears throat> it was difficult, very difficult. So when you and talk about the ammo cache, I'm sorry, go ahead. We wanted to do the best we could for everybody that was around there, but being it was tough because it, it, many times many of our my guys from my platoon were pinned down. Um, there was a, a an MO cache from the a, the Afghan National Army that was somewhere behind the barracks, and it, the, there was a fire that was going on, and it was cooking everything off. So not only were we being shot by the enemy, but we had random rounds being fired from that that cache. They were just going in every which way direction. And then at the same time, the ANA is, is running from that side of the camp and handing their uh, weapons off to the Taliban and cheering the Taliban on. These are the guys that we were supposedly training. Okay. Uh, they're like literally leaving the cop. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it a surrender or was it a, they were in cahoots? No, they knew what was happening. They knew it was, they knew it was coming. And so instead of, you know, because the ANA that got sent to our region were the criminals, the ones that didn't do well in the military, the ones that came from poor families and stuff like that. Those are the ones that got sent to the regions out there because we were getting in firefights all the time. The ANA soldiers that came from wealthy families or did well, they got into bigger cities where not a lot was going on. So we got a lot of the garbage, so to speak. So instead of fighting, they thought what was going to be the best thing to save their life was to run out of that side of the compound, give the gift of a rifle to a 
um, Taliban and cheer them on. So I think that's actually a good point to kind of pause and go back and, and <clears throat> set the stage for the battle. Um, if, if anyone studies any aspect of this, they recognize very quickly from a mil. I mean, I, I don't even think it takes a military tactician to look at it and say, what in the world, you know, were the higher ups thinking putting a, a fire base right in the, at the lowest lying area where mm. maybe even y'all could have been susceptible to flooding yeah. with, with heavy rains. Um, so we, you know, I mean, that's, that becomes a whole other topic of conversation, but y'all were surrounded, y'all were in the, the lowest ground. You're surrounded from every angle. What was your reaction? And I'm assuming you either, you either drove in in a convoy or you were dropped in in a helo. What was your reaction the first time you set foot and looked around and saw all these mountains around? So we all got flown in by helicopter because the roads were just way too dangerous and they were filled with IEDs. And if you got hit by an IED on that road, you'd end up in the, in the river, as you saw in the movie. Um, I, I, I landed on the OP, which was on top of the, the mountain there uh, at, at the middle of the night. And one of the biggest things that I saw right up front was the fact that an observation post is supposed to be overlooking the main base, so to speak, but you couldn't see it from up there. So here's the OP and the base is like down here. So you couldn't even overwatch the OP and we could, they could support it with uh, mortar fire things like that, but you really not a whole lot else you could do. And the you, observation you, post mm -hmm. could be supported by mortar fire from cop heating. No cop heating could be supported by the OP on top of the hill with mortar by, fire. by the mortars from there, right. but there was no line of sight. No. So the only thing that, that you could do is rely on radio, which mm. in, in battle, that's one of the first things that they're going to go after is yep. your communication. So if you lose that calm, mm. you, you've got, you've got two hands moving independent of one another and have mm. no way to move collectively. Is that what I'm hearing? More or less. Yes. Uh, but I do remember that uh, uh, Lieutenant Bunnerman and the, the platoon leader on uh, the OP at the time, because we'd switched. I went down to cop Keating with my platoon and another platoon went up to the OP. Uh, they maintain uh, camo between each other uh, fluently throughout the entire battle. Yeah, and that the the observation post was not really you know, featured in the in the movie. Uh, yeah, and 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 it, it, it that bothers me to a little bit because they had a hell of a firefight up there as well. Second platoon was up on that OP with half the mortars and, and some other supporting elements and and. I'm a little disappointed that that wasn't made to movie because there was a lot of heroism up there and a, and a lot of a, a tough fight up there as well. And so, yeah, it, it's it's disheartening to 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 not see that. The, the real the reality is because of the length of that battle, mm. that probably could have been made into a TV miniseries. I mean, there, there there's so much about it that that I don't think could have gotten into a two-hour movie. No, I think you're right. It could have been for sure. Because like, again, I, I think I mentioned this already, is they had tried to cram 10 years into one movie, which you're not going to be able to do, obviously. Uh, so it, it could have, yes. So 
and, and for the, for those who are are listening to this, thinking, my gosh, you know, why on earth would they, you know, would they put it, uh, put the base where they put it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it it's one of those things that it, it makes sense on paper. Okay, these are the main uh, main supply routes coming in from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the most obvious way to get supplies and um, and ammunition and and men from from Pakistan into Afghanistan, mm-hmm. but that's not the way they were going to come in when it was all said and done. And you could accomplish the same thing by getting on the high ground and overseeing those, mm-hmm. those MSRs. So yep. did y'all ever, did y'all ever get any kind of level of comfort as to the rationale behind it? Or is it still to this day, a mystery to you? <laughs> um, we'll call it a mystery. Um, <laughs> we believe it or not, we we really didn't. The mission wasn't clear. Um, but before we left to go to that area, from the, you know when we deployed, there, there was a lot of talk of we were just kind of up there helping to watch illegal timber trade, and um, you know watch for movement between Pakistan wherever we, we, you really couldn't even see it. I mean. The uh, Afghan and the Taliban, they, they, they knew the terrain. You know, we're in their backyard. They knew the terrain better. They can move independently and undetected in, in so many ways. So um, it just, that, that place was, was, had absolutely no value, zero value. Mm. So, I mean, you're okay. right. And when you, and, and Cop Keating was at the, in a valley and you're looking up and you are seeing you're surrounded by mountains. As soon as you've walked out of your door of your barracks or whatever, you're looking straight up a mountain. And it's not, I'm not talking about a rolling hill, but a mountain. I mean, do, do you think that, that there was a lack of, of understanding of the ability of the Taliban to traverse that, that land? Because, you know, I mean, maybe somebody looks at it and says, oh, that's so steep. There's no way anybody could even, you know, traverse that land. But, I mean, that, everything I've understood about the, uh, uh, the Afghans up in that area is, I mean, you know, with all due respect to those good ones, they're goat men. I mean, they can traverse it like goats. Mm-hmm. No, they, they're, they, they, yeah, like I said, we were in their backyard. They knew. They knew more about all that stuff than we did about how to navigate their own land and stuff like that. So we were really stuck where we were at. It was, it's hard, it's hard to describe it. It's it's like we were stuck. We weren't, we were really not, we were not allowed to do patrols outside of the cop or the base or anything like that. Maybe very small ones that are very, very local, uh, but not any more than that. And so we were just kind of like, we felt like we were just stuck in this place is more or less the feeling of what we had. We were stuck there. We didn't know why. We were just we were getting shot at just about every day, and we it, it was just it was baffling and it was frustrating. So you said you were getting shot at every day, but at the same time, uh, you know the the movie does a I think a pretty good job of of a few other interviews I've heard in saying y'all knew it was coming. You knew there was a big big one coming. Yeah. It was just yeah. a matter of when. So I was up on the OP, and we actually got intel. Um, this is when I was still in the OP early on in, uh, in our deployment, and we did get intel that there was going to be – they were moving a number of people into our area to, to set up for an attack. When, they weren't sure, but it was eventually going to happen. So, yes, uh, 
it, it was known and, and we knew that it was going to happen eventually. And to give people a, a sense of distance, how far as the crow flies is the, is the OP from the cop? So if you were to, <laughs> again, it, it, it wasn't that far away. If you were looking like, like on a map, like it's one just over the other, but like if you're looking up the mountain in ridgelines on a map, you know what a, you know. Many people don't know what a ridgeline is, but a ridgeline is the the circle drawing that goes around the hill and it, the the depiction of how close or wide these these lines are will tell you how steep it is. So it was a very steep slope and it was a very long way up, but it wasn't that far away. But again, it was the position of it just was it was it was useless because we couldn't we no we could not support each other in any way. Yeah, and that's that's obviously one of the most important uh, uh, fundamentals in military defense is is mutual support, and yeah. it and you obviously didn't have that capability there because of the. Uh, uh, I mean, did y'all not have the ability to move it anywhere, or uh, no. was it strategically? This is where you have to have it. Period. End of story. Well, strategically, I don't know about if that's the right word to use it about putting it there. Um, number one and the other, no, we could not move it. There was really no other place to set up what, what we had or replicate what we had in another area. Um, the mountains are very steep. There's not a lot of room for uh, to place something as big as a tent in, in a lot of areas. So there was not a lot of choice or, or prime choice to really move anything around any, anywhere. I mean, of course, we all know you, you want to take the high ground no matter what. The, the, right. the person on the high ground is the one that's going to win every time. But there just wasn't really any good location in the area to be sitting on the high ground with the equipment that we had. Okay, so you knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And again, the movie, uh, you know, the, you've got this uh, Afghani uh, national who is running around, I mean, basically crying wolf. You know, it's happening, it's happening. And, y'all, you know, hey, we know it's happening, but, I mean, you've been saying it's happening today forever. Mm. Then the day hits mm. zero six, just well, I think zero five fifty, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Mm. All of a sudden, things are up. Did you know at the beginning of the day that that was it? You know, when that first round came in, it was a, it was an impact round, and you know we did what we were trained to do. We were kidding up. We were getting ready to uh, support Rebel Tune, who was out. In, in the uh, on on perimeter security, and uh, you know, as soon as I ran out the door to get a sense of what's going on, at that moment, I knew this was not just a sporadic firefight. This was a, a good size one, and it was coming from everywhere. There was a huge difference in the amount of firepower that was coming in, and from the direction it was coming in. Because usually, when we were getting hit. Uh, with the small battles that were coming from a certain direction. And that's when they were feeling us out. They were testing us. They were seeing how we react and a lot of kind of stuff. But this one hit, it was coming from 360 degrees and it was a lot. So yeah, I knew as soon as I ran out the door that this was a, a, a this was not the same. So describe for people the difference between an impact round that morning and what you were accustomed to seeing. So an impact round would be something that's actually hitting a cop on the inside or hitting the building or something and, and <laughs> makes a pretty good thud or an explosion. But sometimes you can, because of, you know, uh, you know everything that we hear and the, 
you're used to a lot of these sounds and stuff like that, sometimes an outgoing round can almost sound like the same as an incoming round because of the, the, the amount of explosive that is sending that charge or the charge it's sending around out of the mortar tube. Um, so we kind of didn't really, we were asking our, ourselves, is that incoming or outgoing? We didn't know. But then I knew as soon as I got out the door. Yeah, because you could probably see everything hitting the ground around you and well, you everything see it, else. You could, hear it, you could see it, you could hear it. And, and you, one thing you'll never forget is when you get a near miss by your head anywhere uh, from a, a small arms round. That being the pop of the round through the air? The, the pop, the whiz, and whatever it's hitting that's close by. So what's going through your mind? You, you run outside. It's confirmed. You know, the the rounds that are coming down, the, the, volley, mm. the volume of fire, as you stated, was much greater than mm. anything y'all had dealt with. And it's mm. coming from every angle. Do you remember what went through your mind right away? <laughs> WTF? Yeah, yeah. Besides uh, the obvious, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when you go, when things like that happen, a lot of times your your brain and your body and your mind go into autopilot. Your your training takes over, your instincts take over, and things like that. So you try to you try to not think too much about anything and just make the decision. You know, you you don't have time to to wonder or, or anything like that. You've got to be able just to make the decision. So as I'm running around, you know, lots going on. You know, I got a near miss by an RPG and all this other kind of stuff. And then, you know, when I knew this was going on, I, I had to get to the talk. I was like, this is, you know, I warned them. I was like, this is none other than what we've seen before. This is, we're getting hit from every direction. This is really bad. And so they knew that. Tell, tell everybody what the talk is. When, when you say you went back oh, to the okay, talk. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. That's Tactical Operations Center. That's like the brain of the, the, the outfit. Uh, they're the ones that, you know, with the communication and the missions and, and you know, receiving a, in and out, the, all the stuff that uh, the planning and all that other kind of stuff comes out of there. So, you know, after I got out of the talk, I went straight back to the barracks and I started, you know, loading up everybody with ammo. I said, you need to get here. You need to get there. You need to support them and so forth and so on. And then we started taking a beating on that side over there. So it was just it was I wouldn't even say organized chaos. It was just chaos. And I know this term has been used before, so I don't want to violate any copyright issues or anything like that, but it was literally a hornet's nest. Oh, and that's, I mean, I've seen that, you know, that documentary and that is, uh, that is an accurate description of, of, of that day as well as what you were in. Mm -hmm. um, so what, I love to hear that the training kicked in and, and, and you just kind of went into autopilot, but you've, you've obviously got a lot of personalities that, that, that react differently. Um, you know, the, not that I'm trying to go into the Broward, Broward, the coward uh, side of things. Uh, although I, I do want to talk to you about that at some point, um, but not everybody is going to do what they're not going to react the way that you were trained to react. Did you have anybody that that you that kind of went through that moment of hesitation and they just kind of they balled up into this? Oh my God, my life is over. I mean, kind of like the the interpreter, uh, the Afghan national that was depicted in the movie. You know, you found him in the in the head. Mm -hmm. um, did you have to kind of get any of your boys back on track 
from a leadership standpoint? No, and I and and everybody on the ground that day for, uh, fought with heart and soul, hands down. Um, there was one point though that I remember distinctly, and, and John Francis and I were uh, engaging some on the mountainside from the uh, what we call the cafe, or was over there by the aid station. And he, you know, we we were just, you know, it was a lot was happening, a lot was going on, and uh, you know, we already known about some of the losses that we've already taken. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Sergeant Hill, it was a pleasure sugar with you. Uh, see you at uh, Fillers Green. And um, for those that don't know, Fillers Green is where scouts go when you die. And there's a poem about it, stuff like that. So if you, if you want to know more about that, then I'm sure you could Google and find it. Uh, and I had to turn to him and say, look, man, I appreciate that. But this isn't over yet. We got to still keep going. We're going we're gonna to get through this. So if there was any moment like that, it was that moment. But he wasn't he wasn't saying it like he was balling up to not fight. He was saying it because he was like, I'm going to fight till I'm dead. I don't care. I'm going to do what I can. And that's, that's the attitude that he had. He wanted to just keep moving on, keep moving on and don't, don't quit. But if I don't come back from this, I just want you to know that. So that's, that's the kind of uh, mindset he had. So he wasn't going to go easily, but he made peace with, with the potential outcome. Yes. That's, that's an accurate way to say it. And what happened to him? He did phenomenal stuff. He he was all over the place. He he and a handful of others, the uh, uh, John Harder and and a couple others with the the there the, uh, was um, I can't remember what time I had, but they they went through. They cleared a burning building. They went through a burning building to clear, to make sure that there was no casualties, there was no wounded, there was no enemy. They, they went through and cleared a burning building in the middle of a firefight. So that, that shows you the intestinal fortitude that these guys had. They, they didn't, there was nothing that was going to stop them. Were they clearing it because the bad guys had pierced the wire at this point, or were they clearing it because they're, they're you know, at this point, we're trying to check for, for wounded and KIA? It was a little bit of everything, wounded KIA, and they were looking for, <clears throat> because that's the side of the cop where uh, the ANA had left and gave their webs to the Taliban, and, and we were getting, um, they were getting through the wire on that side of the cop also, but thank, thank goodness to some folks from Red Platoon and, and Harder and a couple others, they stopped that from happening. So I've heard it said that the, that the volume of fire that day was comparable to what is often depicted in Vietnam uh, stories, movies, um, just wild fire going everywhere because in the, in the jungle scenarios, you know, people couldn't see what they were firing at. They couldn't see the enemy. So they just fired in every direction. Mm -hmm. That, that, that's what, you know, when, when you, when I hear that, I'm thinking it was just raining bullets. It really was. We were getting, so, I mean, there was, there was mortar fire coming in. There was small arms. There was heavy machine gun fire. There was, you name it, it was, it was coming in. So when, when you're talking about, <laughs> when you're talking about it just raining down like that, um, how in the world, did, I mean, I, I know the answer to this, but I want to hear it from you. How did only eight uh, of your comrades die that day? How is that possible? Well, it's not only eight. It was it was the great eight. Um, 
that gave their lives so we could move on. And they stood in front of bullets so we can continue to um, do what we do today. Um, it is a miracle that we, that we didn't lose any more than eight. It really is a miracle. Um, because everybody, I mean, you had guys like, and specifically, you know, my guys were are doing their thing on their side, but you had guys from like Red Platoon running out in the open where all these bulls are getting, were flying around everywhere. And, and they're out there pulling their, their uh, KIAs in to make sure that they make it home. And so they can have a distinguished, uh, you know, um, memorial and, and to allow their families to come to peace and stuff like that. They, you know, it was, it was amazing. It was phenomenal. There's a, there was a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and guts, and, and you name it. it, it every, every one of those guys had fire, and, and, didn't, and there was no putting it out. What is, when you close your eyes and you think back to, to that day, what is the one thing that stands out to you more than anything else? So, in other words, when you're, when you're recounting this, mm-hmm. what is the one thing that just, really sticks with you to this day? That's a really good question. Um, what sticks to me this day is the fact that um, there's just so many questions that are unanswered. Um, I wish I I wish I'd had some answers from people that don't want to answer this que- these questions. Does that make sense uh, from, from a leadership perspective? It does, uh, but I'd love to hear one of those questions. Like, why were we there? Tell me why. You know, um, Colonel Brown, who was a squadron commander at the time, really didn't want us there. I want to be clear about that. He, he was doing what he could to get us out of there. He, he knew that place had no value. He didn't want us there. And, and, and I have a lot of respect for that man. Um, but again, it's just, it really was why. Why, why in the heck were we there? It just didn't, you know, I, I scratch my head to that day every day. And this, this is one of those things I really would like to have an answer to. And I don't want to, I don't want a sugar-coated answer. I don't want a political answer. I want to, I want to, I want an answer, you know, because, because if we, if we lost eight men to timber trade, then that makes me want to, that makes me sick. And it makes me want to say things that probably aren't appropriate for the show. <laughs> Like I told you, I want you to speak from the heart on it, and I'm good with that. Because, yeah, sure. You know, I, I, I think what's, I think one of the things that is most disturbing to me is the experience that guys like you and all of the, you know, the folks in your uh, in your unit that day, while y'all are over there doing that, keeping the fight off in the distance. We just, as, as Americans, cease to understand the sacrifice. Now, people are quick to say, thank you for your service. And I think they mean it. I really, truly do. But, oh, there she is. <laughs> oh, Ladies man. and gentlemen, big thumb, <laughs> big bad, Sar- uh, Sergeant First Class retired, Jonathan Hill. Silver Star recipient, but yes, he has a kitty cat. Yeah, that's, that, that could be the difference between the Army and the Marine Corps, right there. I just want you to understand. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> in, 
in all candor, it's oh, it, it's just it's disturbing that we don't, as a society, put more emphasis and understanding and seek to understand it and and seek to hear these stories because what you guys dealt with that day is is nothing short of of terror. I mean, I hear about you know people driving down the street now and somebody gets mad and they pull out a gun and they they shoot at somebody else because it's road rage. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and that's. It's pretty traumatic for that individual who was on the receiving end of it, mm. but it's nothing like what you guys were doing. And you were doing it in the name mm-hmm. of protecting all of us back here. Does that, does that make you, does it make you angry that people don't have that understanding or seek to understand it? No, it really doesn't make me angry. Um, you know, we all, we all volunteered to join the military. We all knew that when we raised our right hand, we, we knew that there was a possibility we were going to get into something like this. And the, and the military is just not a place for everybody. So there are some people that are out there that I'm like thankful that they didn't join the military. Uh, Agreed. They have, they, have other, they have other callings and they have other things that they could be doing to contribute to the community and to society and to help with, uh, you know, with uh, protecting one another and things like that. So it really doesn't bother me. There are some out there that um, they don't get it. They, they want to, but they don't. And sometimes they can say or think or do some of the wrong things that may make us feel uncomfortable and make us upset. And, and I get that. But there's a point in your life where you just got to kind of move on and, and, and let, them, let them be them. And you just got to keep moving on and doing what you can for yourself and your brothers and sisters and just just accept the fact that that's just society today. And I, I love that answer. I think it's a great answer. I think it's a fair answer. We're, we're not all called to do the exact same things. In mm-hmm. life. And and the calling, you know, that that you answered that day and, you know, the, the grade eight, as you affirm, as well as all of those who receive our nation's highest honor. That's, uh, I mean, we all have our lot in life, but the respect that, that, you know, that you guys are owed and the gratitude that you guys are owed for doing what you did, especially when you can't answer that question why. And I think that's a fair, fair question. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, how, how do we get an answer? Well, I don't um, know. And, and like that. It, it, may, it may never get answered, but just to be clear too, we were there, we were there and we were there for each other. And so let me be clear about that. We were there for each other. We were there to fight for each other. Uh, no matter what the mission was, no matter what the so-called mission was, no matter what the, the premises was, no matter what, we were there for each other. So I want to make that very clear. Um, there was a lot of guys in, uh, on that day, and I don't say gals because we didn't have any females that far out on the, on the battlefield. But I will tell you that anybody on that battlefield would have gave their life for their brother, hands down, no doubt about it. So, so what's interesting about that, though, Jonathan, is that uh, um, you guys didn't know each other before you got there. You didn't know each other before you went in the service. Mm-hmm. And, and, but what you said is the answer that it always comes back to that. And I know it to be true. But. Do you, have you ever really stopped and thought about that, that, you know, you did it for each other, but until you guys all got out there, you didn't even know one another. You, you did it for different reasons to start with, but at the end of the day, 
you did it to help each other get home. Right. Well, I mean, there, there is a, there is a element of truth to that, but we do train with each other for about a year before we go. So we do get to know each other. Um, not intimately, you know, not, not to the point where I know where somebody's child was born and when, you know, things like that. But, you know, you do get to know each other, you know, their quirks and you know, they're this and they're, and they're that. Uh, but, but yeah, no, we, we didn't spend years. We weren't school buddies and we didn't graduate from high school together and we didn't grow up in the same town and things like that. No. Um, but there is, you know, when you join the military, you're, you're, you're joining, like, it's like a fraternal organization, just like anything else. You, you learn that that's you, the brother to your left and your right is, is your keeper. That's, that's who may be there to save your life one of these days. You, you train together, you, you, you learn from each other and, and you, you do the best you can. Um, so there, again, there's an element of truth to that, but then, then again, you know, you, you do get to know each other long enough, I think, before, you know, you go to deployment and things like that. And some, in, in some leadership aspects, you, you really need to get to know uh, your, your uh, platoon or your company or whatever, because you need to know um, about their families. You need to know about, um, you know, what, what, what drives them, how they react, how you can, Help them, you know, you know, with, here's an example, like Scusa, you know, he's not with us anymore. He died in, in, in combat. When we were up on the OP, he didn't react very well to how I was, my leadership style. My leadership style was with an iron hammer and he didn't react well to it. So I had to change my leadership style and figure out how I can get through to this kid so he would, you know, perform this certain duty a, a bit better. And that's exactly what I did. And he, and He's a, he's a freaking hero. I, I think the point that you, that you just brought up is, is, is something that is extremely important. Not everybody responds the same way to the same type of leadership. Mm. And, you know, you know, kudos to you for figuring that out very quickly. Mm. Um, and, yeah, Scusa is one of the guys that just stands out from that whole thing. And, and so I, I bet you were very, very happy and proud to see that, that he was – um, that he was portrayed in the way he was. Yeah, he, he was portrayed well. He was very uh, reserved, very soft-spoken. But, you know, he, before he was killed, he, he gave, I, you know, I gave him a number of boxes of ammo and I was like, I need you to get to this point. And he didn't hesitate. He looked at me, we made eye contact and he had that look of honor and he had guts and he had courage and he, he, I knew he was, he was going to do good things. And sadly, you know, he didn't make it up. He, he was killed right outside of the door, but everybody there, uh, again, would, would have, would, they all, everybody did amazing things. Every, everyone that, everyone that we did not bring home is, is a freaking hero period. Um, and that's the only time you should ever use that term. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. So I know a lot of people may disagree with me, but I'm not a hero. Nobody else with big medals are heroes. Those that we couldn't bring home are heroes. The ones that stood in, the, in front of the bullet for someone like me or someone like anybody else, those are the ones that are heroes. You were willing to, though. Yeah, they were willing to. 
No, you. You were Wellington. Well, yeah. So, but I mean, I, I'm not, I don't see myself as a hero. I don't. I don't believe, I don't, personally, I don't believe I, I, I did anything to earn a silver star. I didn't do anything magnificent on the battlefield that day. I was in a bad situation just like everybody else was, and it was just a terrible freaking day. And, and, and the thing is, is it's just, uh, you know, my memories of what's going on, what happened, and to know that I had fought with some of the best men that ever wore the uniform is, is, is an award enough for me, period. So what did you learn about yourself that day? Uh, <laughs> where not to place a, uh, a, a combat outpost. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, what did you learn about you? Uh, what I learned about me that day is the fact that you can't, you just can't do everything. You, you've got to be able to, you got to, you know, I learned what, I learned what happens when, when, like I said, when the autopilot type thing takes over. And I learned that there's, um, there was just so much going on that you just can't, there's no way that you could handle everything at one time and, and processing those things is very difficult. What did you learn about humanity that day? Uh, humanity. Wow. What I did learn about humanity is that we as uh, <clears throat> Americans have a lot more value in life than the enemy that we were fighting. They don't care. The enemy that we fought didn't care. Um, they, they would kill their own people just to make a point and, and many other outrageous things that they were doing uh, in the, throughout the entire country. Um, so humanity is, is like is that we have more value in life. We take care of our own a lot better than, than the enemy did and, and the folks that are in that country. That's for sure. This question is going to sound like a, um, like a no-brainer, but do you think that that serves us well? Yeah, I think it does. I really do. I really do. I think it does. I think I think it, I think you've got to have, you know, as a leader or somebody in the military. Yes, you do got to be stern. You got to be a trained warfighter, and you got to be able to do that. But you also have to have empathy. You also have to have some kind of a heart. You have to have some sort of, you know, you have to have feelings of some kind. You got to be able to uh, relate. And, and things like that. Cause like I said, you've got, like I said earlier, you know, you got to be able to change leadership styles to get through to somebody to see that they're doing good things and improving or fixing themselves or things like that. So, yeah, I, I think it's beneficial. Well, I, I just want to say it's been an absolute honor. Um, I mean, the reality is, you know, you and I could, I, I could sit here asking you questions all night long. At some point we got to wrap it up. Um, I can tell you this much. I want to have you on again when you come into uh, to Dallas. Uh, of course, when I'm in Dallas, I'm not even in Dallas. But when, uh, when we're both in Dallas again, uh, I would love the opportunity to, to sit down with you, you know, eye to eye, because there there are a lot of questions that I still want to ask. I mean, there, there are you know, we didn't talk about a lot about what happened that day. I want to hear more about about, you know, what happened in your world, because you had a very interesting perspective. And so. I just want to say thank you very, very much. 
for gracing us with your presence here. Um, I, I, I pulled several nuggets away, which is what I always try to do in, in every conversation. Um, I hope you get the answers that you're looking for. I think you're owed those answers. Let me rephrase that. I know you're owed those answers, you and everybody else there. Um, and if there's ever anything that I can do for you personally, if there's ever anything Carrie the Load can do, you know that we're a phone call away. But uh, I always have to ask one final question, and it's an easy answer because we've been talking about it the whole time. Who are you carrying this day? Oh, on this day, we're, we're um, well, I'm carrying nine. If I could carry all the ones that I've been carrying, it, it would, there, would be, there would be so many. Uh, but if I'm going to carry one person, you know, um, I, I can't carry one person. I got to carry all of them, every single one of them. So the, the, the list is long. But the, the eight men that gave their lives that day are, are who I'm carrying, and plus one, which we can talk about another time. Uh, I called him uh, what is a whiskey the name of it was old number seven I called him old number seven because he liked to drink Jack Daniels and and he had gotten injured in Iraq and lost one of his best friends to sniper fire then he gets injured in Afghanistan with the same group of guys like we had talked about before this got injured badly in the same spot again lost a bunch of his friends and got home and he couldn't handle it and he took his own life. And so they, I carry him as well. well. That's perfectly understandable there. Jonathan Hill, thank you very much for, uh, you know, for joining us. You, uh, your, your story is just unbelievable. I would encourage everyone, go see the movie, go read the book, Jake Tapper's book, uh, about, you know, on which the, uh, the movie was based. And I feel certain that we're probably going to have, uh, uh, I feel certain we're going to have you on another time, Jonathan, because uh, again, we got a lot still to discuss. So for all of you out there, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. We've, uh, you know, we've been live tonight and we're going to have another special guest before you know it. That gentleman's name is Stephen Holly. And, and for many of you who, uh, uh, who know the organization well, Stephen Holly has, has become a good friend and he's just a, a great individual. So. For everybody out there, thank you very much. Always, always remember, have a very good answer to this question. Who are you carrying?